God speaks to us in his word in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, and I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If anyone, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning. Just a little bit of a light uh, text today, light Bible reading. You guys are welcome for that. Um, If you're a guest in the room, and maybe you're like, man, I need to go to church. I want to feel really good about all the world and life. I'm, I really apologize for today. <laughs> uh, but the fact is, is this, is there's good news on the back end of this for sure. We are, as a church, we are walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're not familiar with our church, that's what we do here. We walk through the Bible. The way we see it and believe this to be true is that, um, man, my opinion pales in comparison to what the Bible has to say as a pastor and, um, and so we just preach the Bible because this is actually God's words. And the book that we're in is an interesting one. First Corinthians is written to a church. Uh, there's a church in a town called Corinth. And the people in Corinth would have been known as Corinthians. Well, Paul wrote a lot of letters to churches. Paul would plant churches and then he would write letters to them. And really, this whole book is uh, most of the New Testament is a lot of the letters that Paul wrote. But essentially... God wrote these letters. He just used Paul's hands and put to put pen to paper. And uh, so this was a, a letter written to a church in Corinth about God. Now, if you're new to the church um, and you've come in the last six weeks, maybe Advent, you started coming, I don't know, um, you probably are like, well, what is this business? They've been preaching on the incarnation. They've been preaching on um, Christ's return, Christ's first coming. We, last week we heard uh, Blake Randolph preach on what the incarnation, what Jesus coming to earth means for our bodies now. And so let me explain. Um, it's been a little while since we've been in 1 Corinthians, and now we are jumping right back into it. And when I say jumping, I mean we are jumping. This is not a slow crawl back into 1 Corinthians. This is like head first, somersault, belly flop, right back in to this book. I want to ask you to do what you should do every time we get together. Perk up. Pay attention. Listen to the word of God for your life. Not for somebody else. Not for what could be or what happened. Some Who did what, when, where, how. Listen for your life. Let the Bible speak to you today. Let it form us. What this book is about, what this passage is about, is I don't think it's about divorce at all. I think it's about the thing that we all need in every aspect of our life. Marriage, divorce, uh, singleness, job, career, what to do with our life tomorrow. 
I think it's all about the same thing, and it's this. There is no hope in life or death outside of Jesus Christ. Zero. You have no hope without Christ. Your marriage doesn't stand a chance. Your singleness doesn't stand a chance. None of it matters without Christ. And today, I want to invite you to do what we all should do, what I should do more than anyone in this room, and that is this. Come to Christ. Come to Jesus. Don't come because you want to have a better life or you're looking for your best marriage. That may be the means by which you got here today because marriage is in trouble or you're just curious, but you cannot come to Christ because of those things. Those things happen after we come to Christ. But the goal of the Christian life is not to be healthy and holistic in all of our life. It is to do one thing, come to Christ, to anchor to him, to let him mold us, let him form us. And then guess what happens? Marriage, relationships, job, all of that actually ends up being healthy because they are both two people submitted to Jesus in their life. First Corinthians is interesting. It's interesting. It's an interesting text. Paul has been dealing with a church planted in a very interesting region. Corinth, again, was a town that would have been right in a major trade section. So 2,000 years ago, imagine a city. And in this city was all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of ways of living. You had the Roman culture, which was a lot of brute strength, but also a lot of smart governmental ideas. Romans were incredible, innovative, ingenuitive. We have a lot of things today that were built, that we use, that were built, systems that were built by the Romans. Romans loved war. They loved all things fighting, all things confrontational. They loved government. Romans loved themselves. You had that in Corinth. Then you also had the Greeks. The Greeks loved themselves, but the thing they loved about themselves was their mind, how they reasoned with the universe. They would philosophize about how we were created and why we're even here. And then that got to the point where they were actually going from town to town having debates with each other. They would build crowds, and crowds would come hear them debate about these things. And they would philosophize about life and the universe and the matters of mankind. And that was the Greeks. They loved their mind. Romans loved themselves, their bodies. Greeks loved their mind. And then you had the religious people, Jews, who were not Christian. No, none of these types of people followed Jesus. Jews loved the law. They were upset about Christianity. They were in that town, and all of that sort of molded together to form this metropolis that was every kind of God to be worshipped. And I don't mean just like statues of gods. I mean the God of money and the God of sex. And believe me when I say sex was a God that was worshipped in that town. One author described Corinth like this. He said it was simultaneously New York, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles all in one. Corinth was the type of place that guys would go on a bachelor trip and they would make a vow that says, whatever happens here stays here. That's the kind of place that Corinth was. And right in the middle of that craziness, God, which is so fitting, this is just like God. God sees fit to put a church. Because he knows the people of Corinth, 
have done what the people of our world today have done, which is this, try to find satisfaction in life and health in anything other than him, and all you will get is death. Corinth was dying, but they thought they were alive. God puts a church right in the middle of that town. Now here's what happened though. The church that was supposed to disciple the town and say, hey, there's only one person that has the words of life. It's Jesus. It's not this idolatry. It's not this thing. It's not temple prostitutes. That was a thing. Prostitutes in the temple. It's not those things. There's one that has the words of life. The church was supposed to hold its ground, to stand firm, to be watchful, to have courage, and say, you need Jesus. And what was happening was, Instead of the church discipling the world, Corinth was discipling the church. So now inside the church, you've got all manners of confusion, people that are really just about their life. And the hedonism of Corinth, which was bodies don't matter, they're disconnected from souls. Souls are the only thing that matter. Your body doesn't matter, which is not the gospel. That kind of hedonism, which is you were meant for pleasure, you were created for pleasure, and I was created for pleasure, and so then let's just treat each other like you're here for my pleasure, and I can throw you away. Have sex with whoever, give me what I want. I need instant gratification and satisfaction. That was happening in Corinth. The church was discipled by that. The church became hedonistic. And then you had this, which is crazy to think about inside the church, temple prostitutes, church covenant members visiting temple prostitutes and going, this is fine. (laughs) Paul says, no, it's not. Here's why. The swing of that, which is what we do in humanity, the pendulum swing, was a group of people that said, no, that's not fine. We don't want to do that. And you get this term called asceticism, which means basically the human body is evil. The soul is so disconnected, body, sex, even within the context of marriage, wrong. Stay away from it. It's gross. It's not right. That's what we do, by the way. The pendulum swings to the far extremes. Both of those are equally ungodly. Paul comes along and says, Your body and your soul are one. Sex within marriage is a gift from God. Make it holy within marriage. Be in covenant and also the benefits of the covenant that actually lead us to Jesus together. Your body matters. God matters. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is dealing primarily with sex, marriage, divorce, Singleness. We're at a point in the letter that Paul is addressing some very specific things about divorce. I want you to remember something as we walk through this. I'm going to walk through it really fast. So you may have questions in the end. I would love to try and answer those questions. I'm not preaching a sermon on divorce today. Listen to me. I'm going to say this multiple times. Divorce is not the scarlet letter. It's not. In this part of the world, it's seen as that, but it's not. There are multiple types of people in this room, and I know who I'm talking to. There are people who have been divorced, who are going through a divorce, who are absolutely broken because of it. Now, if you're arrogant in in that moment and with your life, then you need to feel and listen to the conviction of God today. But if you're broken here today, if you're on your second marriage or if you're on your whatever, 
Your divorce is not the scarlet letter. It's not the unpardonable sin. God loves you. You can follow Jesus in your life now. But it's the same way that we all follow Jesus no matter what, which is this, repentance and submission to the authority of God that he gives us in his word. I wanna invite you to do that today. I know I'm talking to multiple people in the room. I know I've got a tall task when it comes to divorce, when it comes to remarriage. It's one thing that we need to do, well, several things, but we need to submit to each other. We need pastors, we need community. We need open Bibles as we try to navigate this life together. If you have questions uh, about divorce, if you have more, if you need more in-depth study, you can go to our website, frontlinechurch.com. Uh, you can find a sermon that Pastor Pat Robinson preached on October 31st of 2021. You can scan these, they'll take you right to that sermon. And there are other resources that we can give you. Email Jordan Richardson. But again, today is a flyover about divorce. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus being the root and foundation of all of life and especially in marriage. In the church in Corinth, people had swung the pendulum both ways, hedonism and asceticism. One author says it this way. Hedonism essentially says, have sex with anyone you want. The body is a morally neutral zone. As long as the adults are consenting, there are no moral implications. This view ultimately dehumanizes the participants by removing, removing the soul from the picture of sexuality, thereby animalizing human beings. Asceticism, on the other hand, says don't have sex with anyone. The body is, morally, is a morally evil zone. Even within the context of marriage, sexuality is viewed as a weakness and potentially a sin. This view ultimately dehumanizes individuals by rejecting an essential part of their humanity, the body. Asceticism over-spiritualizes human beings. Stephen Um writes, some of the people in the church in Corinth believed that they needed to be divorced in order to devote more time to Jesus, to spend more time with Jesus, to be more wholly devoted to him, they say, I need to get divorced. That's a real thing that happened in this church. Others, because their spouse wasn't a believer, they thought they needed to walk away. Others, because of their view of sex and multiple other things, and you could start to see that they were looking for any excuse to not be faithful to their covenant. The Corinthians did what a lot of us do, again, fall into extremes, hedonism and asceticism. Neither of these things were God-honoring. Divorce had become a common issue. If marriage and sex were ultimately about my fulfillment and happiness, then why stay in it when it gets old and bored? Why honor someone who drives me crazy? Why sleep with someone that I'm not attracted to or that it doesn't give me utopia anymore? It's true for us today. In 2023, marriage in Pot County tends to be about me not service, not covenant. I need compatibility, and if I don't have that, I'm looking around. Someone to read my thoughts. Someone to say the right things at the right time, all the time, no matter what. Someone to give me what I want. To be attractive always. And to never change for the worse or ever have a bad day. Someone that only keeps getting better and always surprises me at how much better they get, always. If not, I'm out. 
I will find someone that does. It's interesting to think about the contrast between that decade in Corinth and this decade now. Both of those people, asceticism, hedonism, and now in 2023 in Pot County, we both have decided that divorce is the only way to truly be fulfilled. Both are wrong. God through Paul now will address the issues of divorce within the Corinthian church, but keep in mind this. This is not so much about divorce, because again, these are very specific questions. This is our at least second letter to the Corinthians. There were multiple letters. They would ask him specific questions about divorce, and Paul is gonna keep on telling them, just like he does with every single issue in Corinthians, Jesus is the point of it all. If you set your perspective on him, it changes your perspective on this earth. Let's look at how Paul addresses these very specific issues today about divorce. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord, in verse 10, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. The first issue is this, Christian people were starting to ask, like, well, should we get divorced, both Christians? Should we get divorced? Everybody else is doing it, should I? have no real reason, I mean, like, by all accounts, a really healthy marriage, and have no real reason to want to, and they start going, well, everybody else around me is getting divorced, I wonder if I should. And Paul just simply says this, to the married, I, not I but the Lord, I give this charge, don't separate, don't get divorced, <laughs> just don't do it, it's okay, it's fine, you, I don't, why are you looking for a reason to get divorced? He's Directly using the teachings of Jesus on divorce and marriage, in which, by the way, Jesus had some very countercultural teaching on marriage and divorce. Things that would shake them to their core and shake us to our core. And it was this marriage is a lifelong covenant. Marriage is a lifelong covenant. Paul, plain and simple, is saying to this group of people, asking if divorce is always an option, even if there's no reason for it, he's simply saying this stay married. It's what I, if you are in a marriage in this, in this church and you come to me, if you came to me like this and you said, hey, we, a lot of our friends have gotten, we're, gotten divorced. We're kind of trying to wonder if we should too. It seems like a really cool thing to do now. I would do like Paul. I would say, uh, stay married. <laughs> See y'all next Sunday. That's what I tell them. You need to be in church. Stay married. Marriage is a lifelong covenant, Paul says. This is what he sets up because this is silly. He sets up these other issues about being married to an unbeliever or if someone strays away or whatever it is. Paul says, if you, you don't even have a reason to get divorced, stay married. Marriage is lifelong. It's God's design that way. And we believe, and again, this is not the sermon for all of this. You need to go back to October 31st, 2001, multiple other resources. We believe that there are three basic um, reasons biblically to get a divorce. Just three. One is adultery. Matthew 5:32 and 19:9. Another is abandonment, according to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll get to later on in this book. And then finally, abuse. Abuse being basically abandonment and the absence of care, which is what marriage is, and replaced with the presence of evil. Let me tell you real quick, I have to say this every time we mention it. It is not lost on me. We work with Project Safe here. We, we, we work with a lot of 
people have in the church that have gone through, we try to get out of abusive relationships. It's not lost on me the amount of people that are fearful about their life because they're in some sort of abusive relationship. I just want to say this really quickly. Here are the things that you do if you do that. One, our hearts are with you. Two, first thing and foremost, call the police. Second, call your pastors. Third, you should not, I cannot say this enough, even if you have a question about it, you should not stay in an abusive relationship. It's not safe, it's not wise, it's not godly or biblical. We wanna help you. And I can't say this enough. I, I, I tried to not cry saying this in the first service. I'm just kind of a baby anyway. But this is a fact. Listen to me, look at my face. This is a fact about this church. It is a safe place. We will do everything that we can to protect you, to guide you, to serve you. I promise you that. You can talk to us, it's a safe place. We listen in this church. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Marriage, though, is meant to represent Christ's relationship with the church. Ephesians 5, which is a covenant that is unbreakable. Paul says simply this, stay married. Stay married. It's hard, I get it. Stay that way. Stay married. Let's work through it together. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Again, this is Paul answering very specific questions. You almost see it as like a Q&A. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. All right, let's get into this. This is some interesting text. Pay attention. Paul says first, I, not the Lord. Again, remember what we just said with the previous, he says, not I, but the Lord. What he's saying there is he's quoting, basically, not quoting, but he's using directly Jesus' teachings on marriage and divorce. Jesus had a lot to teach about marriage and divorce. And in here, he's saying, not, okay, Jesus did not teach directly on this. Uh, I, not the Lord, would say this. Any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and consents to live with him, he should not divorce her, so on and so forth. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden the Bible doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden this piece of scripture is not inspired. It doesn't mean all of a sudden that God the Holy Spirit is not writing this piece of scripture. Paul is just saying that Jesus didn't teach directly on this. And by the way, this piece of scripture is just as much inspired and from God's mouth as the words that Jesus uttered when he was on earth. The same God that spoke the words when Jesus was on earth is the same one that wrote the Bible. One God. He's simply saying that he's no longer, direct, no longer directly quoting from Jesus' words. This would have been a shocking statement for the Corinthians, and it's probably a little shocking today. If you are married to an unbeliever, don't divorce them. Now, this is not a license. Maybe some of you are thinking in your head, okay, finally, I knew that I could go be a missionary dater. I knew I could just date someone that doesn't know Jesus and is totally fine, so long as they're really attractive. That's not what Paul's saying at all. The Bible actually talks about not being unequally yoked, that, meaning this, that the yoke of you is the yoke of freedom, not bondage in Christ. You've taken his yoke upon you. If you're a Christian, you should not date someone or marry someone that's not a Christian. 
That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying this. Actually, that if you got married, didn't know Jesus, and then one of you got saved, and now the other one won't, actually, it's not all of a sudden like being married to a pagan as defiling the marriage. He's saying this. Jesus is in you. The grace of God is in you, and that actually sanctifies your marriage. It's good for you to stay married. Pray for your husband or your unbelieving spouse. Made holy has nothing to do, the quote there, made holy. Can we put that scripture back on the screen, verse 12? Maybe. There we go. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of a wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. These words have nothing to do with salvation. They have to do with the sanctification of that marriage. Made holy means that you have become a conduit of God's grace for an unbelieving spouse. Jesus' presence in your marriage because of his presence in you. 1 Peter 3 actually describes husbands being one, being evangelized without their wives ever mentioning a word, but by their conduct. That is amazing. Don't go marrying non-Christians, the Bible would say. The Bible speaks about against that. This is about people who get saved after marriage. And then finally, Paul says, this is about a spouse who isn't a believer and wants a divorce because of your faith in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So interesting. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God called you to peace for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul says this, if the unbelieving, now we've progressed, if that unbelieving person says, I'm out, I don't want you or your God, Paul says this, let it be so. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? This is like, flies right in the face of any sort of missionary dating or any sort of control from us at all over whether anybody in our family in our life gets saved. How do you know? Whether you will save your husband. How do you know whether you will save your wife? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Our job in life, in our marriages, in the way that we interact with our coworkers and our family is to pray and share the gospel with people, but it's not ultimately up to us. God is sovereign over salvation. Let it be so, he says. Keep praying for them. It's not up to you. God has called you to peace. All right. Weird text today written to some specific questions in a specific time, but just as valuable for us today, I think. And here's why. Here's some things that I want you to know as we finish up. Let's perk up to these things and let's pay attention. The first is this. The church and its pastors are here to help you have a beautiful and God-honoring marriage. We are here to do that. Marriage is lifelong work. It's lifelong work. If you have been through a divorce or are currently going through one, you do not have the scarlet letter. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. We wanna walk with you. We wanna help you follow Jesus in your life now. And like I said in the beginning, Jesus is the point and purpose to everything because without him, we have no hope in marriage, we have no hope in singleness, we have no hope in dating, we have no hope in life or in death. So I wanna talk with you briefly 
about what a godly marriage is, what godly love is, and what the godly view of the self is compared to what the world, what culture, who is driven by the devil, would say that marriage and love and self should be identified as. Stanley Harawa says this about marriage. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we will always marry the wrong person. Keller says it this way, how many of us date, date, date. Even some people, I think sinfully, will cohabitate, will live together. Which, by the way, the divorce rate among people that cohabitate before they get married is off the charts, like 84%. Explain that. Marriage is spiritual. It's not a game. It requires covenant and commitment. Keller would say this, at some point, you might not be there now. It might be on your wedding night. You might be five years down the road. You will come to realize that you don't know the person you married. That's actually true in every relationship. I surprise myself sometimes to myself. I'll be like, what did I just do? What just went through my brain? It fails to appreciate the fact that we will always marry the wrong person. If you're married to someone today, they are the one. <laughs> They're broken ideas of marriage and culture, and they are this. Find the one. This is the person that knows your thoughts before you think them. Always has the right thing to say and always the exact right tone. And, and no matter what light or state or season of life they're in, they always look beautiful. Wake up early in the morning, wake them up from a dead sleep. My goodness, you look gorgeous. All the time, how is this possible? You look so handsome all the time. How? How do you do this? Husband, I'm blown away at how smart you are in every situation. You've never once done a thing that's annoyed me. Broken ideas of marriage, cultural ideas, find the one. Man, they look like a Disney movie. If you realize you aren't married to the one or that they are no longer the one, then you owe it to yourself and you even owe it to your kids to find the person that is, to get out. <clears throat> Culture says that about marriage. Marriage should be the thing that keeps you constantly, romantically satisfied and personally fulfilled in every way. Broken idea of marriage that the world loves and makes movies about. Here's a broken idea culturally of love. The world's version of love is this. Love is a feeling. One pastor friend said it this way. Love is a vibe. 
Love is something that happens to us. You can fall into love, which means at some point you had to trip on something. You can also fall out of love. Love is so trite, it comes and goes. To not treat it as such would be you going against your very identity and would be self-destructive to you actualizing your true self, to becoming who you really are. You owe it to yourself to fall into utopian love and to stay in it and then to get out of it when it doesn't feel like utopia anymore. That's the whole culture. That's the air we breathe. Culture of self says this. We have ourselves, we have no one else. We are the authority over our own bodies. We are the ultimate authority over our own feelings. I am the author of my life. Being faithful to anything, which by the way, faithfulness insinuates hardship. Rarely do we have to be faithful to things that we're just loving. Being faithful to anything goes against your natural self. Faithfulness is destructive. Quote, they don't deserve me. Quote, I'm doing this for me. That's a cultural idea of self and love and marriage. The Bible's teaching on marriage, love, and sex, and self are shocking and they're hard for us and they go completely against our own carnality, which is exactly the waters that a whole world around us are swimming in. It's impulsive, it's what I want today. Our whole American way is primarily about what we can get out of literally anything and everyone. That's a, there's a term for that, it's called consumerism. We consume people, and churches, and things. We've even put God into the category of consumerism. There's a term for it called moral therapeutic deism, which is basically this. The belief that there is a God, but he's a pushover. He just wants kind of a tip of the cap. He wants us to acknowledge him every once in a while around the dinner table. And if we're really, really devoted, we'll do it every time we sit at the dinner table, but not really any other part of our life. We go on holidays or we say, you know what? I respect you, Jesus. He wants us to be nice, to be good, to play fair with each other, to be not confrontational. Moral therapeutic deism ultimately says that life is about happiness, that God wants us to be happy, and that we are happy when we feel good about ourselves, and that God is there primarily to help us with our problems, but other than that, he leaves us alone like a good landlord. Ultimately, that good people go to heaven when they die. That's moral therapeutic deism. That's actually a false God. It's not God at all. Marriage, love, and self through the lens of the Bible and with Jesus at the center is diametrically opposed to cultural ideas on marriage and on God. Here's how it would describe marriage, love, and self. Marriage in Christ is this. Marriage in Christ means that marriage is not ultimate at all, 
but it is a gift. It's husbands that submit to Jesus, wives that submit to Jesus. Marriages are most healthy when Christ is at the centerpiece. Marriage in Christ is about humility and service. It's about being teachable. It's about you being able to change. It's about you having humility. Marriage in its right place is a signpost pointing to Christ and his church. Marriage is a means to an end. I can't say this enough. Marriage is not the end. Listen to me. You being married is not the end. Marriage is a means to an end. The end is this, the glory of God in Christ. And one day, Jesus will come back and restore all things to him. At that point, our glory will be made sight. Our faith will be made sight. Glory will fill the earth, and marriage will have done its job, and we won't need it anymore. That's a fact. Marriage is not eternal. Marriage is here to point us to the eternal relationship of Christ and his church. Love in Christ is this, God is love. Love can only come out of him. It's not that he has a lot of love, it's that he himself is the definition of love and as a matter of fact, we love because he first loved us. Love is about service in Christ. God shows us his love through his son, his sacrifice. God initiating, God acting. Love is not a feeling, love is not a vibe. Love is simply put, but profoundly thought. Love is faithfulness. Love is obedience to Christ. And then ourselves in Christ. To identify the self in Christ means this. We are created by God and for his glory. The world is broken because of the fall. The fall fed us a lie. And here's the lie. That you can be God. You can be just like him. You can dictate your life. You can run your life. You can decide what you need, who you need. Self-autonomy and self-reliance are byproducts of the fall. And we still believe these lies today. We become our true selves only through the person and the work of Jesus when he's at the very center of our lives. Identifying ourselves in Christ means this, that this reality is only attainable through how God has made it attainable on earth, which is these ways. One, surrender to his, his lordship. Surrendering to his lordship means this. The church being rooted and grounded in a local body, not in an idealistic church, but in an actual church with actual people, with actual leaders who actually don't always get it right. Being rooted and grounded in his word and rooted and grounded in God the Holy Spirit. Love, sex, and identity are crucial to a healthy marriage and they can only be healthy within Christ. But here's the caveat. You cannot come to Christ because you want a healthy marriage. I, I know that's crazy to hear. We do not come to Christ because we want a healthy life. That's not why. Healthy life, healthy marriage, healthy relationships and all that are byproducts of us coming to Christ. But there's one way and one reason we come to Christ and it's this. I have discovered by God's grace 
that I cannot save my soul. And there's only one that can, and it's Jesus. And I'm not going to pretend to know everything about him. I'm not going to pretend to know that I think that I can follow him perfectly or even look like a good Christian, but I know this. I am banking on it with all of my heart, with all of my failures, with all of my little bit of faith, my imperfect thoughts and faith and sin. I just got to believe, man, I am banking on the fact that Jesus is faithful and will save my soul. I'm banking on it because I can't do it. (laughs) I can't and you can't either. That is how we come to Christ. And I think for a lot of years, and even still today, like people come to Christ because their life is messed up. That may be the means by which God gets you to walk into this door. And however he gets you there, he did it. However you're here today, God sovereignly put you in that seat. The means by which he might have gotten you here is because life is a mess and I'm a broken wreck. And welcome to the club, man. I am with you. I'm so glad that you're here. But that is not why we come to Christ. We come to Christ ultimately not to bring our life fulfillment. This isn't about you having your best, most wonderful life. This is that there is no life, no true life outside of him. I'm surrendering my whole life to him. I'm laying it down. And by God's grace, we get to have abundant life here and now in a healthy marriage, but all of that gets sideways when we stop maintaining the main thing which is this we need Jesus you need him so do I man it would be so much easier I no probably wouldn't be easier it'd be a quicker way to respond if I were just to say you like you want a healthy marriage you want a better life well, Jesus is better than all of these other things, man. He'll give you utopia right away. It's not. Following Jesus is hard. But it's worth every penny. It's real life. And I'm talking to you in a very real way. I'm not here to like give you this golden road and talk about crystal seas and streets of gold or whatever. I'm not here to talk about mansions and glory. I'm here to tell you that there is no life. There is no eternal life. You are an eternal being. You are immortally made. Eternity comes for all of us. Death comes for all of us. And outside of Jesus, there just is no hope in life or death. And that's why I said this is not about divorce. This is about every part of us surrendering, submitting to, finding our hope and ultimate joy in Jesus. And God is just this good. He doesn't just save us. He adopts us and makes us family and gives us joy forever. We identify with, the, with Peter when he said, Lord, you have the words of life. Where else will I go? That's how good God is. Here's not just salvation for eternity. Here's all of this meaning and depth and joy and wonder now so husband what are you gonna do how are you gonna men listen to me men in the room how can you possibly withstand the fiery arrows of this world in a world that hates you hates masculinity now hates men how are you gonna stand men listen to me i'm one of you how are we gonna stand
How? How can you be a good and godly husband? How can you serve your wife like Christ loved the church? How? How are you going to step into your calling, lay your life down? How are you going to deal with the pressures of society, of providing, of protecting? It's got to be in Christ. You have no hope without it. Ladies in the room, women in the room, how are you going to withstand? Look at how many names the world tries to give you. Look at how the world tries to identify you by your body type, type of clothes you wear, how you act, how many Instagram followers you have. How? How are you going to withstand the pressures of being mom, being wife, serving your family, getting food on the table? I don't know how my mom did it. She was a single mom of three kids, and I was one of them. I'm equal to like 10 kids, just me, my, myself. I don't know how she did it. How? This is not about you doing all those things perfectly well. This is about you going, I can't, my identity can't be in those things. It's got to be in Jesus. We need Jesus. You need him. I need him. And then out of that comes health and satisfaction in life. But it's not an easy road. That's why we, we take communion every single week in this church. Because we need the reminder, like, okay, yes, I forgot this week. I'm remembering now. I'm about to take this bread and drink this cup and go, I belong to Jesus. God, thank you for the reminder Keep reminding me I belong to him. So if you're baptized, if you're a Christian in the room, you don't have to be a member in this church, just be a Christian. I wanna invite you to come to the table today. Take the bread and the wine. You can take it with whoever you came with, however you want. We'll have people that are serving. So if you're serving, go ahead and come down. For the rest of us, let's stand.